Alex. We've been working together for about two years now, and we work together pretty closely. We talk almost every day. You are currently answering all of my questions about the metaverse. But how many times have we met in person? Maybe two or three? I mean, even right now, not to break the fourth wall for our listeners, but we're not sitting together in a studio. We're on Zoom. We're recording in our own respective apartments. We've worked together in real time a bunch through Slack and Zoom and Google Docs, even though we physically work in pretty distant locations. So my question is, is this the metaverse? Do we work in the metaverse? I'm Alexander Lee, a reporter for Digiday covering gaming, esports, and the metaverse. I'm Sarah Patterson, an audio producer for Digiday. So, Alex, is this the metaverse? We've come up with three basic ground rules to determine whether or not something is, in fact, the metaverse. One, users control an avatar. Two, it translates physical experience into virtual space. And three, there's some kind of social aspect. Now, we're definitely recreating something that coworkers would do in physical space, that recording studio you mentioned. And coworking is inherently a social experience. But platforms like Zoom and Slack are still a reflection of the 2D web. We're not using avatars to record this podcast episode, right? But we could. Doesn't Digiday actually have a virtual office? We totally do. Uh, no big deal, but I actually designed it myself. And if you or anyone listening to this wants to go check it out, it's on the platform Topia at topia.io slash Digiday. I have to admit, we haven't really used it that much recently, but I suppose if we were to record the podcast in that space, then yeah, we'd be working in the metaverse. What is the story behind that virtual office anyway? I sort of made it on a lark a couple of years ago after I had a meeting with one of the founders of Topia. Anyone from Digiday can go in and redesign it to their heart's content, although I do like how I set it up right now. There's all kinds of fun Easter eggs and stuff you can click on. As for why I made the virtual office, the idea was that we could use it for hangouts and occasional meet and greets, which we did do for a while. But eventually the novelty wore off, and it's kind of been sitting empty lately. So maybe it's high time we repurposed it to record a podcast. There is something metaversal about the way our company exists almost entirely remotely these days. And it's not like it's unique to us. According to the Pew Research Center, about 22 million Americans are working entirely from home, and the COVID pandemic really did lead to a permanent shift in the way people value remote work. For sure. I mean, it's a big reason why Workrooms, which is a virtual reality co-working platform, was actually the first tool that Meta introduced under its Horizon Metaverse brand back in 2021. A time when seeing anyone in person was still dangerous. Two years later, we've all figured out how to work from home. So learning a new way to co-work in the metaverse doesn't really feel as urgent anymore. Yeah, agreed. I, I mean, I'm a gamer. I totally understand the desire to do fun things with other people virtually. But, you know, as much as I truly love my job and feel grateful and passionate to get up every day and blah, 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 I don't really feel the need to make work any more immersive. I like remote work because it's less immersive. I can do a load of laundry between calls or spend 15 minutes throwing a cat toy around and be just as productive. Wearing a headset would kind of mess with those vibes. Right. But I do think there's a lot of value to immersion in some work situations. 
like I said, we have figured out how to work from home now, but there was a real disconnect for a while. Going through the motions of starting a new job while you're sitting alone in your apartment, it's all a little tricky to navigate. Meeting coworkers, getting to know your boss, even something tedious like onboarding and training. That is the focus of Vantage Point, a VR company founded by Morgan Mercer. If you're going to take a test in a cold environment, you should actually study in a cold environment because when you prepare for something under the same conditions that you're going to be placed in when you're in this situation, you're more likely to perform in the way that you prepared, right? What Morgan's describing is something called state dependency or state-dependent memory. It's the phenomenon where people remember more information if they're in the same physical or mental state as when they first learned it. You know, when you look at virtual reality, it's really the only thing that can create state dependency in a training environment. Um, Even role-playing a situation doesn't come close because with the way that your brain responds cognitively, it registers that it's a fake environment. The efficacy of VR is predicated upon your brain forgetting that it's in an immersive environment um, from a, a research perspective. And so when you look at, again, the history of virtual reality, the way it's been studied, the way it's been applied, and the way that we interact with it, I think it naturally lends itself to um, to training and to learning. Morgan's training modules deal with all the same corporate HR training stuff that anyone who's worked a white-collar job is probably familiar with. Sexual harassment, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and so on. But she says going through Vantage Point's training has evoked much more empathetic responses than the usual videos or pop quizzes. Some people have even cried. You know, you're sitting at a table having lunch with um, your colleagues, and one of your male colleagues is expressing his frustration to you because his female boss is bullying him and calling him a princess because they're questioning his sexual orientation. And, you know, he's literally just staring at you. And, you know, I actually cried when I demoed the experience the first time. And that's when I know it's impactful is when, I'm, when I cry or I have an emotional response. Um, if I have that kind of emotional response, I know it's really powerful. And so you know, he's actually staring at you and it's like you can see him asking for help on his face. You know, you can see it written all over his face. And the goal is to really, again, elicit the feeling of of wanting to do something and then teaching the individual who's going through the training what to do in that situation. And so just to flesh out my my mental image of this, you hire actors to act out these situations and then film it with a 360 camera, right? That's sort of like what turns into the experience? Absolutely. Um, so that that's the primary way that we do training because we want everything to be photorealistic. Um, when it comes to training programs, you know, talking to avatars really doesn't doesn't feel like reality. So we use the highest fidelity um, video and then we use other aspects. Like sometimes we'll use voice or nodding or different sort of interactions within the program to actually control the experience and give the user agency. Morgan's product is a fixed location VR experience that doesn't exactly have avatars. So it doesn't fulfill all of our definitions for the metaverse. But I do think it shows how immersive virtual experiences can be useful for professional purposes. This got me thinking about Digiday's virtual office again, and wondering if any companies did it, well, not better necessarily, but using a more fully three-dimensional platform, and actually using the space for more than a few months. 
And I think I found an example. Hello, my name is Emma Chu. I am the Global Director of Wonderman Thompson Intelligence, and I look after all things trends and futures related at Wonderman Thompson. So it's actually quite interesting for me to learn how more staff from around the world who perhaps are not necessarily gamers, but are interested in technology, um, are keen to be part of our metaverse group and our metaverse space. And a lot of teams wanting to do more metaverse projects with clients um, are actually trying to encourage staff to explore and do more stuff within the space as well. So again, it's definitely a great way to immerse yourself in it and be part of it. Um, So when you're speaking to clients, you can actually have more of a personalized um, and first person perspective as well. Um, And I just love how even before you enter the space, people are talking about how much time they spend uh, creating the avatars. Emma was kind enough to give us a tour of Wonderman Thompson's virtual office, a three-dimensional space built in a platform called Odyssey. And I have to say, it was pretty dope. Um, I'm going to have so much fun with this. Okay, yes, I see you. Oh, hey oh, there. Oh, nice avatar. Exactly. That's what I mean, guys. There's different looks that people take on. All right, let's check it out. Their virtual office looked like a greenhouse. There were lush green plants everywhere, and they were gently swaying back and forth as if there was a breeze. In the lobby, there were these little info boxes where you could learn more about the work Wonderman Thompson is doing. Uh, Okay, so let's go up the stairs. The next floor up was more of a lounge area with tables and chairs and leather sofas. There were some empty coffee cups and magazines sitting around. It reminded me of the lounge areas at my old offices in Manhattan. (laughs) So we can have like some bants here, chit chat. Um, But yeah, this is a a space where, you know, people can feel like they're together Um, and having some meetings here or whatever they want to talk about, uh, sofas. And we've hosted some interviews here as well. The three of us sat our avatars down in a corner and chatted for a bit. So you say you're a gamer. What do you... What, what's your, what are your games? My main... Consoles? Uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of a Nintendo fanboy. Like, my main console is the Switch. I play a lot of... I am as well. Yeah. I'm quite, um, quite dedicated to Nintendo. <laughs> Me too. Honestly, I'm a bit of a, like... I'm a bit of a fanboy. Like, I, I, I play Super Smash Bros., Mario Kart, Mario yeah. Party. Like, those are my games. As someone who spends most of my time in The Sims just picking out outfits, the space I played around in the most was their retail space, which is where we can put our avatars in different clothes. Wow. Yeah. I'm digging this this shirt that my avatar is wearing now. Now, it's not exactly retail. No money was exchanged. But it's an opportunity for Wonderman Thompson to give their clients a taste of what the future of retail can look and feel like. Like physical offices, not everything there was meant only for work and nothing else. There was a game room where you had to catch keys as they flew around, like that scene at the end of the first Harry Potter book. And if you caught enough, you got to wear an exclusive suit. And then there were what Emma called liminal spaces. Thinking about 
how these rooms don't need to, again, be the same as what you have in the real world. So really define that uh, and thinking about it in a more creative way to spark different interests. Thinking about how different, different venues and different spaces can look like. So yeah, this is our space theme. So much of what Wonderman Thompson is doing in their office is showing what can be possible. It has the facade of an office with all the fixings that we're used to, like a reception desk and a break room. But then you step into that space-themed liminal space and the facade disappears. And now you're looking out at the edge of the Milky Way. It reminded me a little bit of the feeling I got as a kid when I was walking around the Museum of Natural History in New York. Even their conference room had holograms of orcas swimming in front of the table. Wonderman Thompson's metaverse space began organically. It was initially an experiment tied to a report Emma put together about the metaverse. But then it turned into something bigger than that. Um, So now there is actually an open link where anyone can actually go in and dive into the WT metaverse uh, virtual space and create their own avatar and spend time in it. Wonderman Thompson launched its virtual office in the beginning of 2022. Since then, we're told it's been visited by over 26,000 people who spent over 5,500 hours exploring the space. Who knows how much of that activity can actually be classified as co-working. The numbers boil down to about 13 minutes per visitor, so probably a lot of people getting tours like we did. But it is clear that these guys are using their virtual office a lot more often than we are anyway. Morgan would be proud because we're told that Wonderman Thompson has used the space to onboard and train 650 new employees. I'm more interested in another way they're using the metaverse space. They've said that they've actually been using it as a sandbox to design and test virtual spaces for brands like Coca-Cola, Duracell, and YSL. It got me thinking about the real co-working happening in the metaverse. As we heard in our last episode, designing these kinds of virtual branded worlds is a growing industry. And it's the type of work that is native to metaverse environments. And so after the break, we'll talk more about the future of work by and for metaverse natives. In our last episode, we talked about what advertising looks like in the metaverse. A big part of the appeal of the metaverse to the companies building it is its potential as an advertising tool. Brands can create immersive experiences that can reach tens of millions of willing participants. These sorts of ads are the whole promise of the metaverse to brands. It's how the new medium is being monetized, just like commercials for TV or banner ads for traditional web content or product placement for movies, which is probably the best comparison. In the physical world, there is an entire industry devoted to advertising in all its myriad forms. Putting brands into people's eyeballs and brains with print ads, then radio, television, digital. And every evolution of the advertising industry resulted in the creation of new jobs. Copywriters and illustrators became designers, video editors, and web developers. It wasn't too long ago that an entire sub-industry sprang up around programmatic digital ads. So... If advertisements are going to be a significant revenue driver of the metaverse, then naturally someone or some group of people needs to build those virtual ads and branded experiences. Not produce or oversee them the way Sam Huber does, or build the platforms that serve them, like Ashley McCollum. I mean there need to be people who literally enter virtual worlds to build and operate ads inside the metaverse. That's where the creators come in. Yes, my name is Jan Ras Friedman. I'm the founder and CEO of Super Social, 
SuperSocial is a venture-backed developer and publisher of metaverse experiences, initially focused on the Roblox platform. Jan has been building experiences in Roblox since 2020. Those are always on virtual worlds in which users can hang out or play mini-games. But he's been keeping an eye on the platform for a lot longer. He's in it to build a business, but his genuine belief in the concept of the metaverse really comes through, too. 2017, I actually had a chance to meet with Dave Bazuki, the founder and CEO of Roblox, um, and really started to see the immense power of really Roblox democratizing the power of creation of 3D games and 3D worlds really to young people around the world. And as someone who comes from a background of building a computer company for young people to learn to code, I was mesmerized by the possibilities of democratizing technology and creation at that level to, to a whole new generation. And as a relatively early company in the Roblox space, he's had a front row seat as brands and marketers have started spending millions of dollars on the platform. When we started the company, I think the brand brand's activity and brand's presence on Roblox was almost minuscule, really a tiny, 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 tiny exposure. You might have had a couple of brands that have tested in-game activations, uh, even with us and with other games. Um, you might, I think you had, when we came into the Roblox platform, I think there was an experience that was created by Warner um, Brothers with the Wonder Woman brand. And I think there was an experiment there. So you, you, you could already see a few experiments, but it was definitely on the avant-garde, on the pioneer stage. You know, if you think about crossing the chasm and the adoption of consumer technology or technology in general, uh, uh, like written in the book, Crossing the Chasm, you could definitely see from a brand perspective, just a few innovators. People who are kind of jumping in, just trying things out. I think what happened over the last couple of years, especially in 2021, I think you started to see the early adopters, um, folks like Nike and Vans and others that really started to come into the Roblox platform and launched a few experiences. Those experiences were very, initially very raw, I think very uh, uh, just giving a, a, a small, a soft observation or a soft experience of what's possible on a platform like Roblox. So how do they make money exactly? It's just like an agency working in any other form of creative marketing. When Roblox hears from a brand that is interested in playing on the platform, it often connects those brands directly with creator studios, which are often led by more business-minded guys like Jan, but employ teams of creators that are usually pulled directly from the game's teenage player base. The studios charge the brands a fee to build a bespoke item or virtual space, usually starting in at least the tens of thousands, from what I'm told, and can also charge additional upkeep fees for maintenance or new seasonal content. Those funds make their way down to the creators. So just like Sam Jordan, the Roblox fashion designer we met in a previous episode, there are kids who started out as regular players who are now making a living in Roblox. Yeah, I mean... There are individual creators who pull in a lot of money on Roblox, either by selling virtual items directly to players or by partnering with brands to insert product placement into their experiences. I'm talking millions of dollars a year. Ridiculous numbers for an 18-year-old to be making. And as far as a lot of these guys are concerned, they've found their calling. <laughs> I'm not sure if people will be able to spend their entire careers inside Roblox, but this kind of work is definitely going to continue to be a thing, whether or not Roblox remains the primary platform for it. One business model that makes me think this stuff will eventually evolve way beyond Roblox is the agency model, followed by companies like SuperSocial. SuperSocial actually employs individual creators to build its experiences inside Roblox, 
providing them with more consistent work and income than they might get as free agents. And while the company is currently focused on Roblox, it plans to bring its creators to other 3D platforms such as Fortnite Creative in the future too. However, effectively, we are operating at the moment as the developer, publisher, um, and the agency of record for a lot of these brands. I think this is just the fact of what happens. Um, And so I don't really care about the titles too much. Is it an agency? It's not an agency. To me, what matters is I want to work with the most iconic, the most important brands in the world, helping them establish their presence on a platform like Roblox and, and in the metaverse in general. I was hoping we would end up talking about what Jan and companies like Super Social do in Roblox, plus other platforms like Fortnite and Minecraft, because I think this represents the future of co-working in the metaverse, even more than the products like Horizon Workrooms or Vantage Point's VR training. Super Social actually does have a virtual meta HQ just like Wonderman Thompson does. It has a whiteboard and hosts holiday parties. But beyond all that, these guys have a reason to be working together in the metaverse. Actually, they don't have a choice. The metaverse is where their labor takes place. And so the creators of virtual worlds must, by definition, toil side by side for hours to build them. That's real work. It's real, meaningful co-working. A lot of the ways people are trying to co-work in the metaverse feel maybe a little gimmicky. And they're actually making the whole thing more complicated than it needs to be. I don't need to experience an all-hands meeting in VR. A video chat gets the job done just fine. But with remote work becoming the norm, it is inevitable that people will be working in the metaverse in some way, whether they want to or not. And for some industries, it does seem like a natural evolution in the way people work together. We don't need a virtual space to record a podcast, but an architect might use it to go over plans with a remote team. Or an interior designer might do an immersive walkthrough with a client before committing to a look. I don't like the idea that virtual work is inevitable, though. Like you said earlier, you're a gamer. You want to immerse yourself in fun things with friends, like concerts and fitness classes. Do we really want all the trappings of work in the physical world to get translated into the metaverse? I mean, that is what some people want, to be fair. It's a bit comical, but... Last year, the blockchain gaming consultant Mikai Kosar told the publication Rest of World that real-life players could replace non-playable characters inside games, saying real people could, I quote, just populate the world, maybe do a random job or just walk back and forth, fishing, telling stories. One can imagine a shopkeeper in RuneScape actually being played by a minimum-wage worker in Algeria, or a gamer getting hired to play the role of a computer player in Mario Kart. As ridiculous and dystopian as this future sounds, it also kind of sounds like the logical extension of everything we've been talking about throughout this whole podcast. To be fair, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. While it's true that creators like Jan have been able to reap the monetary rewards of this metaverse economy, the fact remains that these economies exist at the whims of their platforms, and that they exist primarily to make money for those platforms. That's why the revenue splits across all the major metaverse platforms are generally unfavorable for creators. The business model of the metaverse is to build a world and then levy a tax on every transaction or even every action that takes place inside it. There are a lot of reasons to spend time inside branded experiences. They're fun, and users in Roblox are often enticed by limited time events or special item drops. And I'm definitely not saying that the metaverse platforms are exploiting anyone. Honestly, they're very open about what they do and how they make money. 
I just think it's important not to lose sight of why corporations and brands are pouring millions of dollars into the metaverse. It's not just so we can have fun. But you are down for the fun, right? I love the fun. I think if or when the metaverse happens, that it will continue to be more of a place for entertainment than any kind of work. That's why I wanted to focus on the fun stuff, like concerts and virtual sports, before getting into the nitty-gritty of virtual co-working. Entertainment is why people will actually choose to spend time in the metaverse. The rise of labor in the virtual world is just something that is happening organically as a result of that. It's been interesting to compare and contrast the ways a lot of the people who claim to be building the metaverse talk about it with the way regular people react to the concept. I'm not just talking about the -the man-on-the-street interviews we did in the first episode, I'm thinking about the people I know in my everyday life. In our first episode, I told a story about my roommate listening to me talk about the metaverse all day and asking me how I could spend my days talking to the worst people in the world. She thought I was spending all my time talking to crypto scammers and corporate executives. And especially after all the conversations we've had about this stuff, I get it. I mean, I think there are some misunderstandings there. I'm still enthusiastic about my definition of the metaverse, which is rooted in games. But I totally get why she was under the impression that the metaverse is nothing more than an NFT grift or a desperate grab for cash by Facebook. Because there are elements of truth to all that. I mean, the metaverse is supposed to be an escape from the real world. And in some ways, it is. But we've seen that the real world is able to find its way into the metaverse as well, particularly in ways designed to make money out of the attention and engagement of the people inside it. That's why ads will inevitably be part of all the cool, flashy, metaverse-y stuff we've discussed over the course of this show, just like ads and brands are part of everything in the physical world, for better or worse. Some people might see this observation as depressing. I just think it's the world we live in. The metaverse is going to be a whole world too, not just an arcade. And that world is going to be made up of people. You can put as many ads and branded experiences into a virtual platform as you want, but I've learned that the people who are building the most interesting parts of the metaverse are focusing not on the ways to make money through it, but on how to best take advantage of the wild opportunities for human co-experience that are possible inside of it. We've seen the power of genuine human co-experience in platforms like Roblox and VRChat, which bring in thousands, if not millions of people on a regular basis, and sometimes crash because so many users are trying to get on. These platforms have prioritized the community aspect, and they have a massive lead over newer contenders like Meta's Horizon, where I imagine you see tumbleweeds and hear crickets when you log on. Unless Meta can figure out some kind of crazy killer app to get people to join its platform, it's going to remain empty, which only furthers the idea that the metaverse is dead. VR Fitness hopes to be a money-making business in the future, but it's gained thousands of users by focusing on their experience first, not on potential revenue streams. Teflon Sega could probably make more money if he toured or performed more traditional in-person concerts, but that's not how he managed to build such a rabid virtual following. For all of them, human co-experience is what makes the metaverse more than just a video game. Thanks for sticking with us as we answered again and again the question of, is this the metaverse? I think it's pretty clear that from fashion to exercise to live music, pretty much everything we do for fun and for work is getting translated into virtual worlds, whether or not we actually use the term metaverse to describe those efforts. 
this future is going to come in fits and starts. But so far, I think it's been more Ready Player One than Black Mirror. Is This the Metaverse is a podcast by Digiday Media. It was written and reported by Alexander Lee and Sarah Patterson. It was produced by Sarah Patterson and edited by Ben Elman. If you've been enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to share it with somebody else who doesn't know what the metaverse is. 